Now we don't have any value. sentence. It's me, Eden Kupermintz, and I am once again recording a solo episode. We'll get to the author and topic of this episode in just a bit, but first of all, I wanted to take some time and thank all of you for listening to this podcast. I've been thinking a lot lately about kindness and gentleness, which I think are values or dispositions or even world perspectives that do not get enough attention in our modern culture, whether literary, musical, artistic, or otherwise. And I think especially liberalism or individualism paints a very, well, individualistic picture of kindness, where kindness and gentleness are measured by specific acts or things that you do, like helping someone cross the street, or assisting a new person in learning a skill or even a language. And while all of those things are, of course, kind and gentle and important, I have been thinking about gentleness and kindness as sort of a mode of a community, of, of a group of people, a disposition of people who share a common interest and react not just to others in this in-group, but also to people who come from outside of it with a sort of gentleness or a kindness that is often expressed in not even a welcome, because a welcome is again an act, but rather a sort of again, this position or perspective. And I'll, I'll let you know why I'm talking about this because I felt, feel like as someone who came into the podcast late and became its co-host that I have been incredibly welcomed by this community by no one really commenting on it, which is great. And I'm not, I'm not being sarcastic or ironic. Like everybody acted as if it's completely natural for me to step in, which was greatly appreciated. And over the last few months, not just in you know raw lessons, which are of course important, and anybody that tells you that they're not important is bluffing, but also in comments and retweets and shares and all that stuff, um, you've been incredibly kind and receptive of the con- of the type of content that we've been making, and it really means the world to me, and I know that it does to Langdon as well. 
there's this idea that we'll touch on probably when talking about the author today of the void or the abyss you know it's this metaphor that has been around in philosophy and literature since well since forever if you think about stuff like the chthonic darkness in greek mythology and in other ancient cultures and i think one of the greatest manifestations of this metaphor or archetype if you want to be Jungian about it is the internet the internet is a lot of noise and a lot of attention and action but of course as with the classic void archetype it lives in between the most noisiest of things right that's where you find you know the space between the atoms same thing with the internet when you speak into the internet which is at the end of the day what a podcast or a blog or twitter or facebook or any other communication we attempt to do you're talking into the internet it often feels like you're talking into the void and that your voice is lost and that's not a great feeling which is why whenever one of you comments on something that we do or even just click on a link or any other interaction no matter how small it feels like we have recouped our voice from the void which is great so this is not a call to action this is not like when i say oh go to our patreon or click like and share and subscribe and all that stuff no i just want to thank you for everything you've done so far even if it is just quote um just listen to the podcast right which is not just at all it's a it's a big thing so thank you and that's it let's get to today's um subject so today i want to talk to you about an american author called kidge johnson you heard that correctly her first name is spelled k-i-j and she was born in 1960 in Iowa and has been writing fiction ever since well not since the day she was born obviously but for a long time now and she has also worked for companies like Wizards of the Coast and TSR on a bunch of franchises that are let's say adjacent to our community um, and she's worked for Dark Horse Comics as an editor she was the managing editor for Tor Books so she's been around the science fiction and fantasy spaces for quite a while now in all sorts of capacities she has also won the nebula award three times for her short stories and novellas she's won the world fantasy award three times and the hugo award she's also won the french grand prix de l'imaginaire and the theodore sturgeon memorial award and many other accolades why do I choose to open with all these accolades beyond the biographical? Because I think it's interesting how much I never heard her name until I randomly picked up one of her short story collections at a bookstore in Mountain View of all places. I was visiting for work and one of my favorite things is just to go into a bookstore and get some random books that I've never heard of before. Partly because where I live in Israel, it's very hard to get literature. I mean, even before COVID, especially in English. So I take the opportunity, but also because it kind of ties the purchases to a place and the story and the memory, 
which is always um, nice for me. So anyway, I had never heard her name before, which is odd, considering that At the Mouth of the River of Bees has blurbs by Ursula K. Le Guin at the top, where it should be, and also Lev Grossman, and I've heard many other authors since, since I've like googled her name, speak in her um, praises. And also she's just extremely good, which is the main reason that I want to talk to you about her today. So I'm not sure what the story is here. Maybe she is more famous or well-known in fantasy spaces, which admittedly I have not kept up with in recent years. I still read fantasy, but not nearly as much as I read science fiction. And also because maybe she is a short story author, which is usually not my format of choice. But whatever the case, I am extremely glad and grateful that I got to read her short stories, and I plan on reading her novels and her other work as well, because she is one of the most gifted writers that I've had the pleasure of reading in the last few years, and I think her gift specifically is that rare gift, which we'll dive into in a second, that authors like Ursula Le Guin, Roger Zelezny, and others of that sort had, which is, simply put, to unhand you to unhand the reader with very simple language. Her stories, especially her short stories, are not structurally complex or grandiose. On the contrary, I would describe them as modest or even, quote-unquote, small, of course, without any derogatory connotations that that adjective might have. And they are also written very plainly. And it is that plain language which gives them both their beauty, but also evoke empathy and sympathy um, on the reader's side, right? It is easier to put yourself in the shoes of these heroes, or other protagonists might be a more accurate word here, when they are written in such a quote-unquote small way. So... I want to focus on the short story collection that I have been reading over the past few weeks, which is titled At the Mouth of the River of Bees. It was published in 2012 by Small Beer Press, which is an excellent publication, by the way, and they have a lot of really, really good titles, and you should check them out. And it was also a finalist for the World Fantasy Award. And this is a short story collection, which... um, gets its name from one of the stories in the book, one of the longer stories, although it's not the longest or very long. Um, It is, I think, around a dozen pages, give or take, in my edition at least. And it has stories from all across her career, but all of the stories, or many of the stories, not all of them, we'll take a look at some other examples on this episode, have a lot to do with animals and specifically with the relationship between humans, their pets, but also wild animals. And these relationships are at the core of many of these stories and represent a sort of portal to another, not another world, because the whole point is that it's our world, and we'll get into that in a second, but rather a world besides our own, a world that is ours, but is seen through 
non-human lenses with non-human logic and non-human desires and non-human actions, which if you've listened to the last few episodes, you'll know is very important to me. We have read stuff from Jeff Vandermeer and um, not Becky Cloonan. That's the comic book author. Why do I keep forgetting um, her name? The woman who wrote The Only Great Harmless Thing. And now I will cheat and you will hear my keyboard once again. Brooke Bolander, of course. I don't know why my brain refuses to hold, um, to retain that knowledge. We've spoken a lot about animal-human interactions and the ways in which animal interaction is irreducible to humans and should be kept irreducible in literature to kind of grab the new place which we must give animals in our world if we want them to survive and us to survive. But I actually want to approach this discussion from a different direction because I think we have covered the animal angle in previous episodes. And I actually want to talk about magical realism. In case you're unaware, magical realism is a genre or a style that emerged in the early 20th century in painting and architecture. Magical realism was a style that stepped away from surrealism and abstractism and kind of melded them with quote-unquote real-world objects. So instead of painting something completely abstract or completely surreal, which has no relations to actual objects that our rational mind can perceive, magical realism infused some of that weirdness and surrealism into common-day objects. Of course, one of the most famous examples is Salvador Dali and his style of painting. So if you think about one of his most famous paintings, if you think about, um, you know, the melting clocks, that's a common day object which is infused with weirdness, right? A A physical liquidity. There are many more artists, of course, than Salvador Dali, but he is one of the most famous iterations of it. Um, Picasso as well could be said to have magic realist works, although he wasn't himself a magic realist, um, self-described magic realist, or not all of his periods have magic realism in them. And in literature, of course, you have the works of Borges, which we mentioned on previous episodes of the cast, but also Um, Gabriel Marquez with 100 Years of Solitude, perhaps one of the most famous examples of magical realism in literature. And in general, Latin America and magical realism have a very fruitful relationship. Another author that we could cite here is an underread author named Angelica Gordischer, who mostly authored true crime novels but also wrote many short stories which could be considered magical realist. A lot of them were collected in a collection that was translated to English by none other than Ursula Le Guin. That's right, Ursula Le Guin spoke good enough Spanish to translate a short story collection. The short story collection is titled Calpa Imperial. And Gordischer also has another short story collection that appeared in English in the recent few years called Trafalgar. And she is really of that literary tradition and uses magical realism much in the same way that Borges does and also injects it with a lot of political critique. 
and social critique and economical critique, which is where I want to bring us to. Magical realism, beyond the aesthetic value which it has, and it has plenty of aesthetic value, I adore magical realism and what it can bring to all um, media, also has a political potential because it shows us that the world around us can be understood in different ways, that the world around us can be made magical, and that the things which we encounter, like trees, cars, streets, other people, buildings, and so on, don't have to be dead. Now, what do I mean by dead? Capitalism you knew this was coming, capitalism sees the world as an array of objects to be catalogued and then exploited. In order for objects to be exploited and catalogued, they cannot have their own agency. Right? If you start to think about cows as entities with their own volition and their own will, then their exploitation that is, the industrialization of the harvesting of their bodies, becomes much more complicated. However, if they are chattel, if they are objects that are alive only in the biological sense, but are dead in any other sense, they become arrangeable and exploitable and intelligible. Of course, this logic extends beyond just animals or flora and to humans. Right? That is the same impetus that stood behind the slave trade. That is why they made um, African bodies into chattel, because chattel can be arranged, and you can squeeze it onto a ship and then resell it for profit. Magical realism tells us that nothing is dead, that everything potentially is alive and powerful and magical, and has its own volition. You just need to know how to talk to it. So if you think about something like the Earthsea Cycle by Ursula Le Guin, where everything has a name, a true name, and if you speak that true name, you can converse with the object, you can negotiate with it, you can hold power over it, yes, but, but you hold power over it through the recognition of its own identity. Or if you think about folk tales, where animals and the trees and weather itself becomes entities which you can converse with, you start to see how magical realism makes things live. And this is in contrast to high fantasy. High fantasy or high magic, so if you think about your level 10 wizard in D&D or your Harry Potters or things of that sort, they still often describe reality as something to be manipulated. There are arcane, literally, arcane rules that must be studied for years in very expensive universities. By the way, no one ever talks about the cost of tuition in these places. Well, I say no one, but think about someone like Terry Pratchett where his unseen university is basically a monument to privilege, right? And he makes the statement that wizards are basically the rich, right? They're the ones who can study magic. And when someone who is not rich is accepted, like Rincewind, aka the best wizard who ever lived, I don't want to hear arguments about that, 
um, when he joins the university, he has like a terrible time and is used as a scapegoat by the other faculty. But, but running back to our topic, so you either have money or time or an innate ability, right? If you think about Harry Potter, the, the myth of the chosen one. Only those who are born with this trait can channel magic. And magic is something that allows them to manipulate their reality. Now, why are we talking about all this? Kid Johnson does not necessarily include all of these critiques and or uses magical realism for a political statement. But she does do two things. One, her stories show us how the world around us can be understood as magical, even though we know at the same time that it is not. It's not about a delusion or a hallucination. I'm not offering you the path of seriously coming to believe that the tree outside your house is alive. But Johnson shows us how that's not important. It's not important if the tree is really, quote-unquote, alive. Because to ask questions about reality is to exactly miss the point of magic realism and thinking about magic and handling magic. And we'll see how she does that in her short stories. And the second point she makes is that in order for us to maintain a hierarchy of weak and strong, of worthy of help and unworthy of help, of a friend and foe, we need to make some things less important than others. For example, the pains of a dog need to be lesser than the pains of a human or the flow of bees needs to be less important than the flow of traffic or goods. In order for us to keep thinking about the world as human-centered, we need to reduce the concerns and the realities of non-humans, and this is where we come full circle once again, to a lesser status than ours. And magical realism can help us elevate their needs back to our level. Okay, so that's kind of like the overview of where we'll be approaching this. So let's start talking about the way that Johnson employs magical realism in these discussions. By looking at the first story in this book, which is also, I think, the best story in this collection. And I think it was one of her stories that was nominated for um, an award. I believe it was nominated for the Hugo. Yes, it was the finalist for the Hugo Award in 2009. This story is titled 26 Monkeys, Also the Abyss. And right out of the gate, let me say something. Johnson is a master of the title, the short story title specifically, which is kind of a lost art, but I feel like is incredibly important. And we, we had a few masters of that in the past, um, some, some of them in the golden age. I think Paul Anderson was very good at that. Isaac Asimov was always very good at that. Philip K. Dick, of course. If you think about titles like Beyond Lies the Wob, 
um, or we can remember it for you wholesale and other titles they're just extremely good and Johnson's titles are second to none first of all at the mouth of the river of bees is an incredible title it is so effortlessly um, evocative and powerful and it conjures the kind of wonder that runs through the story in such a great way and that's also true for 26 monkeys and also the abyss it immediately does something that magical realism always does which is it equates the small with the mighty and that's something you'll see in angelica gordisher's work as well and borges by the way this idea that there are things which are grand and serious and somber and must be approached with this awe of seriousness is something that magical realism directly works against, right? Because we are not mighty wizards, you know, Nietzschean ubermensches casting lightning from the top of cliffs. We are grandmas and storytellers and merchants and street urchins and a soldier or a local politician. We are regular people encountering magic in our day-to-day, in the mundane in the story itself not just the title where again right 26 monkeys are equated with the abyss in the same breath disarming this grandiose notion of the abyss the protagonist of the tale amy i won't i won't spoil the end of the story by the way i won't spoil any of the stories because i want you to go and read them and also they're short so you can do that very easily amy is a disaffected person of i would say my age or perhaps older i don't think no it is it is um referenced in in the story directly i think she's 45 but the age is, is not as important as her you know the phase she is in her life she's lost she has a job but it's like not a career she is super passionate about she doesn't have a partner she hasn't been what she would say in love for a long t- for a long time now and her life kind of feels directionless right it's that kind of miasma almost or like faint unrest that a lot of us experience under late capitalism especially in america but also in other places and one day she goes to the fair and she sees an act and in that act 26 monkeys surprise climb into a bathtub and disappear. The bathtub is hoisted above the stage and when one part of it is let go and it kind of falls to reveal what's inside, the monkeys are gone. And Amy is seized by this inexplicable need to buy the act. She goes up to the person operating it and she tells them that she needs to buy the act from them. And they say, I know. And sell it to her for a dollar, which is what they paid for the act originally. And now Amy gets an old tour bus, 26 monkeys, and a bathtub. And every evening, across like 116 shows a year, because she likes to give them like two months off at Christmas, she tours the US and does this act. And when I say she does this act, I mean that the monkeys do it. The monkeys disappear through the bathtub. She has no idea where they go or how they go. And when she returns to the tour bus, they filter in. 
um, carrying assorted items, articles of food and clothing and so on, and repeat. Sometime on the road, Amy meets Jeff, and he kind of moves in with her, and, you know, they're not, like, passionately in love, but he's around, and he helps her out, and she has, like, a relatively good time with him, but it's not like your, you know, fairy tale romance. And as the story advances, it's obvious that one of the monkeys, um, Zeb, who is the guy, well, the guy, the monkey, um, in charge, quote-unquote, of the act, he appears to be ailing. He's quite old and he appears to be near the end of his life. You know what? Maybe I'll, I'll, I will actually spoil the story. So if you don't want to have it spoiled for you, you should stop listening now. Or skip ahead. So Zeb is ailing and Amy wants to know how the act works before Zeb dies. And he shows her, but does nothing to see. He doesn't do anything. He just goes into the bathtub and disappears. And then reappears later. There is no secret. There is no mechanism. There is no lever. Um, lever. Sorry. That's a complicated word for a non-native English speaker to pronounce. There is no lever behind the curtain for Amy to take control of. Right? She cannot learn fifth level disappear monkey's spell from Tenzel's book of spells or whatever. It just doesn't exist. And that is magic realist to an incredible degree. There is no incantation. The magic is inherent to what is happening. The event itself, the actors, their arrangement is the magic. And the only way to cast it or enact it is is to play it out, right? The story, the event, the actors are intrinsically part of the spell. It is not in a different world. It is our world changed. So... She's very worried, but then Zeb simply appoints a different um, ape, a different monkey, to take over the act. And Zeb um, dies. And a while after he dies, someone walks up to Amy and says that they need to buy the act. And she agrees. She sells it to them for a dollar. And then the whole point of the story is captured in the last few paragraphs. Well, we see Amy after the act is done, and she lives with Jeff now. And perhaps she's realized that a burning love, a romantic, star-crossed love, is not necessary for happiness, and not necessary for a good relationship, or even love itself. Love itself can be low-key, low-intensity. They live together, and they're happy, and most important part is that sometimes monkeys appear in their apartment and they send them back with a game or an article of clothing. And basically the last few sentences of the story tell us that these monkeys and where they go and where they come back from is all the people who have needed the act in their lives. And what the act does is it acts like a sort of crutch to get these people back up on their own feet. Like you have a broken leg, a crutch helps you take take the weight off of it so that it can heal. Here, these people don't have a broken leg. They have a broken sense of meaning, hope, 
and purpose in their life. And the magic of the act keeps them going, keeps them curious, keeps them moving and changing their lives until they learn how to generate happiness for themselves. The magic realism, the belief in magic, the existence of magic is not about manipulation and it's not about control. It's about hoping. It's about believing that there is a reason to go on, that the world is wonderful and wondrous and that it is, it is fascinating. Now, that's not the case, objectively. The world is not actually magical. If you think about it from the lens of the rational, the world is dead. That's the postmodernist slash nihilist belief, right? But you still need to live. You still need to hope. You still need to go on. So one of the ways in which we can do that is to consciously believe in magic and not Again, lightning-wielding, tornado-summoning, wish-fulfilling, high magic, but simple day-to-day magic. The magic of 26 monkeys disappearing into a bathtub. The magic of a good meal. The magic of friendship. The magic of music. And it doesn't matter whether that magic exists, quote-unquote. It matters that we believe in it, right? And the act is a surrogate for that belief. And furthermore, the story, Kidge Johnson's literature, offers you the same promise. In case you have lost your ability to keep believing, to imagine the world as magical, to enjoy the magic of life, which happens to all of us at some point in our lives, then this literature is here to show you once again that magic exists. Right? That the world around you is not dead if you do not see it as dead. I want to read to you a quote from this story before we move on to the next one. This is at the very end of the story and kind of speaks to everything that I just said. Here's the trick to the bathtub trick. There is no trick. The monkeys pour across the stage and up the ladder and into the bathtub and they settle in and then they vanish. The world is full of strange things, things that make no sense. And maybe this is one of them. Maybe the monkeys choose not to share. That's cool. Who can blame them? Maybe this is the monkey's mystery. How they found other monkeys that ask questions and try things and figured out a way to, be, to all be together to share it. Maybe Amy and Jeff are really just house guests in the monkey's world. They are there for a while, and then they leave. The next story I want to talk about approaches all of this from a different angle, but kind of showcases Kidge Johnson's ability to, first of all, write in that very simple way, and really shows why it is so powerful and how she turns the mundane into the magical. In this story, titled The Name of Water, 
Let me just double check that. Names for water. Sorry about that. An engineering student named Hala, H-A-L-A, is not doing so well in school. She, it's not really what she thought it would be, and she's not sure she wants to keep going with engineering. And she's having a tough time. Any of you that have ever studied something they weren't really interested in, especially at high academic levels, know that it's a bitch, to be uh, perfectly honest. It sucks. It's really hard to find the motivation and to find a reason to keep going. And it's also kind of a trap, right? Because you keep saying, oh, I'm going to switch majors or change my degree, but everything else seems just as bad and despair kind of has you by the knees, right? It keeps dragging you into this quicksand. If you haven't been able to tell yet, this happened to me. Um, so th- that's why I'm so intimately familiar with those sensations. Um, and on this day that the story focuses on, Hala forgets her umbrella and it's raining and students are miling about and life is happening with all of its anxieties and tasks and things to take care of. And suddenly she gets a call on her phone. And when she picks it up, there's just static on the other side. You know the static. The static when no one is speaking. But she convinces herself that there is someone on the other side. Or rather, something. It is the ocean calling her. She's not hearing static. She is hearing the susurration of water on a shore. And if she can only name the body of water that is calling her, she'll get a response back. The the ocean, or whatever body of water is on the other side, because she starts naming lakes and seas and rivers and so on, if she just names it, again echoing things like the Earthsea Cycle, she will get a response. So she starts running down all of these names, and she doesn't get a response. This is where I spoil this story. So if you don't want to have it spoiled, skip ahead. Until she uses her own name. And when she uses her own name, she hears it speaking back to her. The story ends with Kij saying that she doesn't know this, but Hala in three months, I think, I don't remember the exact time, will change her major to physics, astrophysics. And six years from then, again, don't catch me on the actual timeline, she discovers the first frozen body of water outside of Earth. And then 60 or 80 years in the future, the first astronauts land on that planet and name the ocean after her. And the story explicitly says that none of this is true. That is, all of those events happened, but it wasn't actually the ocean calling her from the future. And she didn't really hear her name in the echo. And that event is not even why she changed to astrophysics. There's no causality here, right? The magical does not set off a chain of events that then in some sort of like like Ted Chiang's arrival, by the way, Kid Johnson thanks Ted Chiang um, in the book, so maybe that's appropriate to reference that. 
um, or other time loop stories, it doesn't come full circle and it's kind of that magic of, you know, the paradox of what came first and what came last. But as the story says that that is all not true, it of course in the same breath says, but that's actually what happened. In the back of her mind, that call changed her life, changed the way she made decisions, hearing her name spoken, yes, by an alien ocean light years away, did lead her to discover the things that then led to that ocean being named after her. So that duality of purpose, that duality of reality and unreality, is exactly the magical realist mode and the way in which it re-enchants our existence. And going back to the idea of duality, and I promised you this example of the simplicity that Johnson employs in her language to channel all of these um, emotions and ideas, listen to the following quote and see how the simplicity of the world's chosen channels that kind of duality. In this case, the duality is between a distance which seems short and is in fact said to be not infinite, but then very quickly becomes extremely large, fantastical, and magical. She says aloud, the Pacific Ocean. It is the ocean closest to her, the one she knows best. It pounds against the coast an hour from the university. On weekends, back when school was not so hard, she walked through the thick-leaved plants that grew on its cliffs. The waves threw themselves against the rocks and burst into spray that made the air taste of salt and ozone. Looking west at dusk, the Pacific seemed endless, but it was not. 6,000 miles to the nearest land, 90 million miles to the sun where it dropped below the horizon, and beyond that, to the first star, a vast but measurable distance. So we start from this statement that the Pacific Ocean is not unmeasurable, right? The Pacific Ocean is not that vast. 6,000 miles, but then you leap towards the sun to 90 million, and then you leap towards the closest star, where of course the distance is technically measurable, but it obviously is mundanely infinite for us, that distance. Light here doesn't mean anything. It's not even a measurement of distance, but a measurement of time, and we'll get back to that because that is explicitly used in the last story. Um, the titular story that we want to get to. So, and you see, there's no like grandiose evocations of space with these magnificent word usages and register and so on. It's just simple words telling you about simple, measurable things and yet injecting the infinite and the fantastic and the magical into their mundane description. So let's get to the last story that I want to talk about, although it is not even close to capturing all of the great stories on this collection, and that is the titular story, At the Mouth of the River of Bees. In this story, our protagonist is called Lina, and she lives in Seattle, 
and gets stung by a bee. Surprise, I know. And that sting is kind of the catalyst that causes her to say, you know what, fuck it. I'm done with this faint restlessness like Amy that I feel in my life. I need a change. She takes her elderly dog who suffers from a spinal condition, puts him in a car. He's called Sam, by the way. Puts him in a car and they go on a road trip. Where to? Well, supposedly as an excuse, her parents live in Wisconsin or maybe she'll just cross the Cascades, but there is no destination. Um, The journey is the point and she just needs a change. She needs to move. Thing is, somewhere in Utah, even though there are very few cars on the road, suddenly there's a traffic stoppage. Um, Something up ahead is blocking the road. And when she gets out of her car to see what it is, she is informed by a local police officer or a state trooper, I don't remember, that there's a river of bees crossing the road and stretching onwards towards the horizon. She gets stung again near the same point where she was stung before. She lets Sam out. He you know, stretches his legs. He's very ailing and failing. And it's only a matter of time before he dies. And he's in a lot of pain. But she still wants him to stay, even though it hurts him. Because she loves him. And she waits for like 24 hours and the river doesn't seem to be abating. When the officer... She tells the officer and the officer tells her at like the same time that she's going to follow the river. She needs to follow the river. There is something calling her to see the mouth of the river of bees. Well, the river goes back to wherever it came from, right? Springs underground and so on and that's what she does she she starts to drive across utah into really bad roads you know like small gravel paths and eventually off-road completely in her subaru forester which is not exactly an all-terrain vehicle and she's aided by this kit that the officer gives her that his father apparently left behind just for this case And this is where we'll spoil this story. So if you want to skip, you should skip now. And eventually she finds the mouth. And in the mouth greets her the queen. The queen of the bees, right? Every colony has a queen. And it's unclear if the queen is a giant bee or a human. She kind of oscillates between these two states as... Um, the protagonist's mind doesn't really want to, you know, think about like a giant bee and eating with this thing because she does. She has like tea and cakes and all that stuff. And the queen has a cat, and it suddenly becomes apparent what this is all about. It's not about Lena and her restlessness and her need to reinvent her life. It's about Sam and the cop's father brought cat all those many decades ago if the animal stays with the queen it will live for many more years until someone else has the need and comes to her with the animal and they'll also live a good life so sam will be healed of his spinal condition and 
won't return to be like a puppy, but will be energized and be able to live a good life with this queen. Um, I wonder if this is the time when I cry on the podcast for the first time. Um, and that's how it ends. Um, even though it's very hard for her, Lina decides to leave Sam there and wishes for him to live forever, right? Live as long as he can and it won't be with her and it hurts her so much to let him go but at least he'll live a while longer and live a good life a while longer. The cat dies to, you know, there's only one spot, right? The, the order of things must be maintained. These animals can't keep going on or living forever and Lina buries the cat. Um, and what's so wonderful about this story and so powerfully evocative is that twist that we mentioned where only at the very end you realize that the story is not about Lina or rather it is not Lina's desires and willpower that is driving the tale. It's not about her objectives and her accomplishment of those objectives. It is about the suffering of Sam, the suffering of an animal that we as humans should be responsible for. It's not our fault. Sam is old. We didn't make him have that spinal condition, although we could there's a mention of, you know, breeds and breeding dogs and what that does to them, but I don't think that's the point. It's just a fact of life. And yet it's a fact of life that we are completely powerless before, right? Anyone who's lost a pet and one of the reasons that this hit me so hard is that I lost a cat a few months ago, knows that it's just unbearable pain, partly because there's nothing we can do about it. And here, when Lena can do something about it, it requires that she give up Sam. He is no longer for her. He is no longer there to make her life better. He is no longer there to be a companion. And yet she chooses for him to live because it's not about the relationship. It's not about gain or loss or what she gets from him. It's about his existence as a creature with its own pain and its own age and its own death and its own life, right? Um, I want to read to you the final paragraph of the story. She is never stung again. Her dreams are visited by bees, but they bring her no messages. The calligraphy of their flights remain mysterious. Once she dreams of Sam, who smiles at her and dances on young straight legs just out of reach. So even when Sam comes back to her, it's not that he is, you know, constantly escorting her and it's this thing about how the spirit lives on, lives on in memory and she keeps getting what she got from him when he was alive. 
or alive with her. No, it's no longer about that. It's not about what she earned from this journey. It's about what he earned, which is a few more years of livelihood and enjoyment and release from pain, which again is what magic realism promises us. It doesn't promise us a world that we can keep manipulating and molding to our will. That's the promise of high fantasy. It doesn't offer us a path to suddenly see beyond the veil, like in the Matrix or Harry Potter, and suddenly to understand that if we just know the rules or were born with the ability to change them, we can control reality. It allows us to understand that things are alive without them relating to the human. A tree has life, multiple lives, hidden from us, mysterious to us, other than us, and we owe it to that tree to let it keep that life. The same thing goes for a cat or a dog or anything else, and especially to other people. In a sort of Kantian way, magic realism helps us see others as their own protagonists, their own subjects, their own actors. And what Johnson's literature accomplishes is to help us see that, help us feel that, the, the mundanity of the fantastic and the fantastic of the mundane. And that is the true power of our stories, beyond just the incredible language and the incredible writing and inventiveness and so on. It's this ability to help us feel pain and regret and hope and love and sorrow and all those things and understand them as part of the magical reality that we all live in. Our song for this episode is by a band called Snooze. These guys are from Chicago. I'm cheating again, which we said is not cheating, right? They are from Chicago. And in, I'm just checking that they are from Chicago. Yep. And in 2019, they released an album called Familiaris. Snooze make a kind of experimental or just unique kind of math rock blended with progressive metal and even some hints from gent right like chuggy riffs and so on but they do so in an incredibly unique way the first album um actually extremely from 2017 is one of the wildest releases I've ever heard. It's very out there and structureless and experimental. And Familiaris, by comparison, is a bit more grounded. It's a bit more um, cohesive. And I think it adds a lot to the um, sound. Unfortunately, in 2020, I think it was, the band lost Cameron one of their um, members and they've actually released an album called Still without him um, and 
Familiaris itself is about the life cycle of a dog, from the moment in which it is taken from the great universal and made into a dog, or as the album says, the greatest creature that ever was, through old age, and back again as a conceptual circle. The reason I brought up both that concept and the death of of Cameron is to join it to Kid Johnson's writing, right? Um, Handling death of a pet or of a friend, of a person, is incredibly difficult. And I feel like Snooze did great work on both of these records in channeling them into music. We're going to listen to Amicus Posterum. I'm not sure that lang- that Latin is correct, but, you know, Paw Friend, um, which is the opening track from Familiaris. I urge you to listen to the entire album. It is simply incredible. And if you have dogs or pets, it will make you cry. Snooze Amicus Posterum. Bum 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 b